is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for an American classic science fiction TV series that set the standard for all others that would come after it. Here's Jesse. The Twilight Zone is some of the best science fiction ever written. Created, produced, and narrated by Rod Serling, the series was shot in black and white for 156 episodes between 1959 and 1964. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. At a time when television viewers were familiar with standards like Leave it to Beaver, The Lone Ranger, and I Love Lucy, The Twilight Zone was a dark psychological thriller mixing fantasy with suspense in the dark hours of the night. My name is Talking Tina, and I love you very much. Will you shut that thing off? My name is Talkie Tina, and I don't think I like you. My name is Talkie Tina, and I think I could even hate you. After graduating high school in 1943, Rod Serling began his military career, serving in the 11th Airborne Division in World War II. Nightmares and flashbacks for the rest of his life. It influenced much of his writing. I was traumatized into writing by war events, by going through a war in a combat situation and feeling the desperate sense of the terrible need for some sort of therapy. Get it out of my gut, write it down. This is the way it began for me, because I came back with 11 million other guys who had very similar problems. So it was not unique, nor was it not to be expected. We, were, we had very special problems that we were going to write about. He was face to face with death every day and he used the unpredictability of death in his writing. I can't conceive of anybody not falling into this pattern who writes, has certain special loves, certain special hang-ups, certain special preoccupations and predilections. In my case, it's a hunger to be young again, a desperate hunger to go back where it all began. And I think you'll see this as a running thread through a lot of things that I write. And part of creativity, of course, is being able to have the capacity to convey that kind of hunger, that kind of nostalgia, that kind of bittersweet feeling to those who have never had it. Throughout the 1950s, Rod Serling established himself as one of the most popular names in television. He was also famous for criticizing the motives of other television writers at the time. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced that 90% of the writers who walk around laying claim to the honored sobriquet of writer, are thinking in a sizable portion of their mind, uh, will they love it in Des Moines? Will they understand it in New Orleans? And consequently will deliberately prostitute and write downward to, to what they believe is the lowest common denominator. And when you start to preoccupy yourself, I think you're in trouble. Because I am writing in an art form, the whole function of the art form is to be translated to other people. There's an emotional experience to be shared. Consequently, it isn't just me and my tower. It's how people will react to what I write. Serling began his professional writing career in 1950, earning $75 a week as a network continuity writer for WLW Radio in Cincinnati, Ohio. By the winter of 52, he gave up the security of his paying job to take a chance at freelance television writing. He dropped everything and moved his wife and kids to New York. The immediate motive at the time, the prodding thing that pushed me into it, was that I'd been writing for a Cincinnati 
television station as a staff writer, which is a particularly dreamless occupation composed of doing commercials. As I recall, there was a, uh, a drug, a liquid drug on the market at the time that uh, could cure everything from arthritis to a fractured pelvis. And I actually had to write testimonial letters. And on that particular day, I just had it. And though I had been freelancing concurrent with the staff job, the best year I'd ever had, I think we netted about $700, which is hardly even grocery money. And that one night, we just decided to, you know, sink or swim and go into it. When television was new, shows aired live. But as studios began to tape their shows, the business moved from the East Coast to the West. The same companies who sponsored the shows were often involved in editing and censoring the programs as they saw fit in order to protect their brands from what they considered to be controversial subject matter, situations, or competing product placement. And now, Mr. Serling. This cigarette gives all the advantages of extra length and much more. The great taste of 21 vintage tobaccos grown mild, aged mild, and blended. Serling was often forced to change his scripts after corporate sponsors found something they didn't like. He soon realized that the only way to mitigate such drastic sponsor influence was to create his own show. We have what I think, at least uh, theoretically anyway, because it hasn't really been put into practice yet, a good working relationship. We're in questions of taste, in questions of the art form itself, in questions of drama. I'm the judge. Because this is my medium and I understand it. I'm a dramatist for television. This is the area I know. I've been trained for it. I've worked for it for 12, in it for 12 years. And the sponsor knows his product, but he doesn't know mine. So when it comes to the commercials, I leave that up to him. Serling was demanding a new kind of relationship with the advertiser. One that protected both the integrity of the program and the dollar of the advertiser. Rod Serling felt so strongly about protecting his content that he produced videos for companies that were interested in buying time on his show. He was making it clear that he was in charge and that content was king. You gentlemen, of course, know how to push a product. That essentially is your job. My presence here is for much the same purpose, simply to push a product. To acquaint you with an entertainment product which we hope and which we rather expect will make your product pushing that much easier. What you're about to see, gentlemen, is a series called The Twilight Zone. We think it's a rather special kind of series. Essentially, people watch television to get entertained. And the keynote of this series, the thing we're concerned with, the thing we're aiming for, the thing we're working toward is entertainment. This is a series for the storyteller, because it's our thinking that an audience will always sit still and listen and watch a well-told story. When we return, the story of the Twilight Zone in Rod Serling continues right here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories. And by the way, go to Our American Network to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now we return to the story of Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone. Here's Jesse. When Serling submitted a script called The Time Element to CBS as the pilot for The Twilight Zone, CBS used the script for another show, The Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse, in 1958. Westinghouse, first with the future, presents The Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And welcome to another Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse. Tonight, we're going to see a story written by Rod Serling and starring William Bendix. Our story begins in a doctor's office. A patient is sitting there. He walked into this office nine minutes ago. This would have been the original premiere episode of The Twilight Zone. The story concerns a man who has vivid nightmares about the attack on Pearl Harbor decides to visit psychiatrist. Can you tell me in one simple statement whether or not I'm off my rocker? Without dragging in Sigmund Freud and a lot of medical school English, can you tell me what's wrong with me? I can try. Well, I keep having this dream. I've, I've had it, I don't know, five or six times now. What sort of dream? A real one. Did you ever have any wacky dreams that seemed real? Oh, sure. I guess we all have. But have they happened over and over again? Recurred, same dream. The same dream, identical, it doesn't change. The twist ending reveals that the patient had died at Pearl Harbor and that the psychiatrist was actually the one having the vivid dreams. Yes, sir? We're up and on the rocks. Something wrong? Uh, no. Who's the guy in the picture? Oh, him? No, the, uh, the other picture. Oh, that's Pete Jensen. He used to tend by here. No? Jensen? No. Just look familiar, that's all. Where is he now? He's dead. He was killed at Pearl Harbor. The episode received so much positive fan response that CBS greenlit The Twilight Zone which officially premiered the night of October 2nd, 1959. There is a sixth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the sunlight of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area that might be called the Twilight Zone. A man suffering from amnesia wanders through a small town, desperately searching for people until it drives him mad. Please, somebody help me. Somebody's looking at me. Somebody's watching me. Help me, please. Help me. Help me. Help me. Unaware that he's part of a secret military experiment gone terribly wrong. What happened to him is that he cracked. Delusions of some kind, we assume. But let me tell you all something, gentlemen. If any one of you were confined in a box five feet square for two and a half weeks, all by your lonesome without hearing a human voice other than your own, I'll give you especially good odds that your imagination would run away with you too. 
For Rod Serling, the horrors that he experienced in World War II were always a motivating factor when it came to writing scripts. His ideas, however, came from a different place. Ideas come from the earth. They come from every human experience that you either witness or have heard about, translated into your brain in your own sense of dialogue, in your own language form. Uh, ideas are born uh, from what is smelled, heard, seen, experienced, felt, emotionalized. Ideas are probably uh, in the air, like, like little tiny items of ozone. That's the easiest thing on earth, is to come up with an idea. And the second thing is, the hardest thing on earth is to put it down. Who was it uh, that said, writing is the easiest thing on earth? He said, I simply walk into my study, I sit down, I put the paper in the typewriter, and I fix the margins, and then I turn the paper up, and I bleed. From a series of student talks recorded at Ithaca College in 1972, Rod Serling shared his philosophies on writing and storytelling. The principal obligation you have as the writer is to go to a climax which interests and excites, and, and if it doesn't satisfy, uh, at least makes an audience sit up and take notice of it. It must also be valid. It must take the various character traits of the individuals involved in your story and make them do something or react to something as their nature dictates. This is to say that, for example, if you're dealing with a Quaker pacifist who is constantly being beaten around the head by the neighborhood bully and who suddenly at one given moment in, in his life says, I will not turn my cheek again, I will hit back, and does so, you must, have, you must absolutely believe that there is a moment when a man will turn his back on a fundamental belief and do something foreign to his nature. Or the reverse is true. You can show a bully who all his life has stepped on people, who does it out of a sense of sheer cruelty, who has no sense of the value of the dignity of other human beings or the feelings of other human beings, and in a given moment in time put into a position where he has a chance to save someone he couldn't care less about, but literally risks his life to do so. There must be a reason he does it and a believable explanation as to why he does it and the fact that you believe that he does it. This is the sort of thing you must do. The Twilight Zone won two Emmys and a Golden Globe, but even though the show had loyal fans, ratings were down. After five years and 156 episodes, 92 of which were written by Serling, he was done with the show. In 1964, he decided not to oppose its cancellation sold the rights to CBS. I take off and write out of a sense of desperate compulsion. I always write as if uh, I'd just gotten my x-ray from the doctor on Monday, and he'd best check with the insurance man and see whether or not the house is free and clear. I always write with a sense of desperate urgency. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a preoccupation with my own demise. I think I'm good for another 18 months at least. But I, I always write as if, gee, get it down. But very often, one of the major problems with strong writers who deal in dialogue above plot, which happens to be, I think, more my forth than, than plot, dialogue. If you look at some of the pages of the stuff I've written, and even some of the good things, shut your eyes, you won't know who's talking, because they all talk alike. And who do they talk like? Me. Now, that's wrong. And it's something I've got to lick over the years, but it's a, the most common literary problem, I think, of strong dialogists. On May 3rd of 1975, he had a minor heart attack and was hospitalized. A second heart attack two weeks later puts him in the hospital for open-heart surgery. After 10 hours on the operating table, 
Serling suffered a third heart attack and died two days later. He was 50 years old. A symbol of a sad but rather commonplace event. An impressive funeral the deceased laid out in the most acceptable manner. But in this case, at the last moment, deciding that in matters concerning the trip to the great beyond, perhaps this trip wasn't necessary. Very often when you write for a living, you run across blocks, moments when you can't think of the right thing to say. Now happily, there are no blocks to get in the way of the full pleasure of Chesterfield. Great tobaccos make it a wonderful smoke. Try them, they satisfy. Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job on that as always, Jesse. And it's just so interesting to hear from the artists themselves and to hear, well, to hear him talk about his World War II experience. And before there was PTSD diagnoses, they called it shell shock, but nobody came back for therapy. I mean, you just, you basically had to suck it up. And he channeled all that, well, well, all that nightmarish uh, activity that he'd witnessed and all the nightmares he experienced after into creativity and channeled it into this remarkable art. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. I mean, uh, my favorite of the recent past months, we get to hear from Orson Welles himself talking about his life, his creative life, mistakes made, uh, ambitions. Again, this is what we do here every day on Our American Stories from their voices to your ears, we try to stay out of the way and we try to just keep it as real as possible, as authentic as possible. And these American stories, well, they come from every possible type of American. And this was one of the most creative Americans. And by the way, that he had to sell his franchise back to CBS. The very people who probably were skeptical about his work in the first place. My goodness, that just hurt me to hear personally. This is Lee Habib, Rod Serling's story, The Twilight Zone story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell a lot of stories about the men and women in our military on this show, and we tell a lot of stories about Americans of faith. And today we have a story about a remarkable man who lived, served, and died at the intersection of these two great communities. This is the story of a Catholic priest, a U.S. Navy chaplain, one who earned our nation's highest award for valor. Here's Father Daniel Mode who wrote the book on Father Vincent Capadano, appropriately titled The Grunt Padre. It was Labor Day in the United States. People were running about to the beaches and the last barbecues, having a joyous time before school began. But in a whole other world away in Vietnam, the war was continuing to rage. And on this Labor Day of September 4th, 1967, Father Capadano found himself 50 miles to the southwest of Da Nang with the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Early that morning, a small platoon of men of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines was on a typical search and destroy mission, a patrol. They found the enemy, or really the enemy had found them. This small group of less than 100 men 
found 2,500 North Vietnamese in a major offensive during elections in Vietnam. Obviously, this platoon was quickly overrun, and more and more command elements of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines were added to this battle that would be known as Operation Swift. One company after the next, including M Company of 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Father Capadano was with them at the headquarters when they got the call to go. And they were to go to a battalion aid station that was quickly being set up so that the wounded and the dying could come to a place on the battlefield. That's where Father Capadano needed to be. So he boarded the helicopters with M Company and made their way towards that battalion aid station, literally in the midst of the battle. The helicopter didn't make it there. It was literally shot down in the midst of rice fields so close to the battlefield. Father Capadano got off the helicopter with his men. There are two platoons on either side as they made their way now on foot to that battalion aid station. But between them and that aid station lay the conflagration of war. They set themselves up on a small knoll. On the other side of that knoll raged the battle. On this side, M Company established its command post. Father Capadano could hear the gunfire, the men engaged in battle, and he heard the radio operator calling back to the command post, we're being overrun, we're being overrun, we can't hold out. That was Corporal Lovejoy. Well, Father Capadano couldn't hold out anymore. He had been in Vietnam for 16 months. He had already served with the 7th Marines, was in eight major battle campaigns. He knew what combat was all about. He knew where his men needed him most, and he knew where his sacraments were needed most. And it wasn't on the safety side of that knoll of the hill. He dashed over that hill, found that radio operator, Corporal Lovejoy, grabbed him by the shoulder, and brought him back to relative safety. Time and time again throughout that late morning, and early afternoon, he would do the same thing with the wounded and dying. He knew where the sacraments were needed. It wasn't on the safety side of the hill. And in a firefight like that, it doesn't take long until everyone gets injured, at least a little. And Father Capadano was no exception. His first wound of the day was through his right hand. It was shot, disabling his fingers. He was bandaged up, but refused to leave the battlefield on the next medevac. He said, I need to be where my Marines need me most. Oftentimes, the Marines deploy tear gas through the area in order to dissuade the North Vietnamese who don't have gas masks to disperse. All the Marines donned their gas masks, save one. He had lost it. Without a thought, Father Capadano took off his gas mask, gave it to that young Marine to continue the fight, while Father Capadano choked back the tears. For that heroic act, he got his second wound of the day in his right shoulder when a mortar went off, now disabling his whole right arm. Again, was bandaged up but refused to leave the battlefield, only saying, I need to be where my Marines need me most. Sergeant Peters was dying. He propped himself exposed to fire on a tree stump. Sergeant Peters would receive the Medal of Honor that day for his heroics on the battlefield. Sergeant Peters was an orthodox man, again dying, exposing himself to gunfire so that he could point out where the machine guns were on the ridge. No one dared go near Sergeant Peters save one man, Father Capadano, who ran to his side despite the bullets, despite his own wounds, to pray with that man, 
to care for him in his last hours of life and prayed the Our Father as he died in his arms. After that scene, a Marine shouted out, My gun is jammed, my gun is jammed. Without a thought, Father Capadano took the rifle of Sergeant Peters, ran across the battlefield without firing a shot to give it to that young Marine to continue the fight. The last moment of Father Capadano's life took place near a machine gun nest where three Marines, one of them being Ray Harton, Corporal Ray Harton, were going to try to put down that machine gun nest that was getting the better hand of the battle. As they made their way there, they were all shot. Two instantly killed. Ray was shot in his left shoulder. A corpsman went to his side, Corpsman Leal. That corpsman was shot through his legs. Both of them now were lying on the battlefield bleeding, expecting that the next thing they would feel would be bullets or bayonets. Instead, it was Father Capadano running across the battlefield to them. First, he went to Ray Harton, who again was bleeding through his shoulder. He blessed and anointed him. Ray had just served his mass the day before on Sunday. And he said these words to him, Staying calm, Marine. God is with us all today, and you're going to be okay. Then he ran to the side of Corman Leal. Again, his legs had been shot. He prayed over them. And at that moment of his prayers, Corman Leal was also Catholic. He was shot 27 times in the back. And so ended the life of Father Vincent Capadano here on this earth. For his gallantry, Father Capadano earned our nation's highest decoration for valor, the Medal of Honor. But Father Capadano's influence went well beyond Vietnam, well beyond September 4, 1967. One man who used to teach in school with him when he was a seminarian read the story of Father Capadano's death. He hadn't been to church for a long time. And because he was so moved by the heroic aspect of Father Capadano and knowing him, he decided it was time for him to get back to church. He walked into the church, told the priest why he was there and wanted to go to confession. And then the priest, kind of amazed at this whole thing, said, well, why? Why are you coming back? And he told him the story of Father Capadano, and then he said these words, I guess a missionary doesn't stop working even after he dies, does he? And as you can imagine, Father Capadano changed the lives of many of the Marines he served with in Vietnam. One of those Marines is a name you might recognize from our story about him. You'll certainly recognize his company. One of the persons I got to know through this who was with Father Capadano on the day he died is a lieutenant, Fred Smith, the founder and CEO of FedEx. But on that day of September 4th, he was a lieutenant in the Marine Corps. He knew Father Capadano well, and it was at that death that inspired Fred Smith to re-engage in his faith, to re-engage in a purpose in life. Ultimately, he would say that it was Father Capadano's example and witness that propelled him to take that risk so many years ago to found that company. The father of Vincent R. Capadano, his service to his country, to his fellow soldiers, and most of all, to his Lord. His story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from arts to sports and from history to business, and your stories, too. And we've been featuring all month long stories about adoption because it's National Adoption Month. Many of these stories have come from young families and are from the perspective of the parents. But today, we want to bring you a story from an adoptee, someone who was adopted, a lady who is now a mother and grandmother herself, Helen Overstreet and her mom, Becky Graber. Join us here in our studios in Oxford, Mississippi. Helen, tell us a little bit about your early childhood, where you were born, and what you remember about where you grew up. I don't really know where I was born. My birth certificate says Marks, Mississippi, but I knew I probably was not born there. They adopted me when I was, I guess, almost four months old. When I was born, there was a rule at the orphanage, which was the Mississippi Children's Home at the time, that you had to double your birth weight if you had been a preemie. And I was born weighing four pounds, which is, I'm assuming that's not a lie on my (laughs) birth certificate. But um, they made me weigh eight pounds before I could be delivered to mom and dad. So mom said they got me on December 8th, and I was just all eyelashes. So someone had loved me. I wasn't a crier. So somebody had been taking care of my needs, but I never have found out who that person was. My earliest memories are of going to church in Marks, Mississippi. We stayed there for four years and lived next door to my grandparents and down the dirt road from aunts and uncles. And when I was four, my father took over a different gas dealership that was in Senatobia, Mississippi. And it was far enough away that he was missing my waking up and my going to sleep at night. And with me being his only child, he said, I'm missing out on part of my life. So I need to move my family near to my work. So we left Mark's when I was four. I don't remember living there. But every weekend we went back to church there. And church was really our community when we grew up. It was really kind of an idyllic childhood. Well, lucky you, Helen, and lucky that you had a parent like that and parents like that who who waited for you. And lucky that you doubled your body weight, by the way, in a very short time. Not many women are looking forward to doubling their body weight, but it saved you, actually. Talk about some of those memories. You just mentioned memories. Talk about some of those memories of this remarkable couple that just loved on a total stranger. Your memories of your mom and dad. I thought it was really funny when the tooth fairy was supposed to come. I always knew my mom was a really great cook, and I loved to be with her cooking in the kitchen. Those were always happy times. And with Daddy being a gas dealer, one of my favorite places to study was pulling a chair up to the oven that was pulled down and all the warmth that came out of there. And I'd have my notebook, and it was a perfect place to write as a desk in the kitchen. But when I lost my first tooth... I hadn't really talked to friends at school or anything. Not having siblings, you didn't really know what to expect. But I had what I thought was the prettiest bedroom in the whole world. It was pink and white. Looking back, it was really bad. The pink carpeting was really bad. I think we ended up calling it raspberry sherbet colored. But anyway, I loved everything pink. And maybe that's just a girl. But Mother had gone out and gotten pink glitter and glued it to the backs of quarters, nickels, and dimes. And I think I got two of each under my pillow. And when I woke up that morning and found those, I can't tell you how magical it was. It was magical to me 
for three years because I never had another friend who got that from the tooth fairy. I was the only one. And it took me three years to figure out there wasn't a tooth fairy. But I still thought I had the best tooth fairy in the whole world that mom would, you know, and looking back, that mom would take the time to do that. I bet glitter was not very readily available in Como. I'm sure you had to go possibly to Pine Bluff when you went to visit your mother (laughs) to find pink glitter. But that was a really good memory. But we had so many. I remember the sky rides coming out when we put them on two trees And Daddy really wanted me to be a tomboy. He really encouraged me to be a tomboy. Mother had me dressed up all the time. Daddy took me fishing and hunting and all sorts of stuff. Mother later became a hunter, and I went hunting with her. But um, when the sky ride came out, I was a little fearful. So Daddy built a treehouse with a platform, and this was like on steroids. But anyway, we had... We had the, it was like a Disney World ride, and people came from far and wide to ride my sky ride because it was so cool. You got to climb up in a tree, jump out of a house. I mean, it'd be like zip lining today. And we just had it right in our backyard. And we're talking to Helen Overstreet and her mom, Becky Graber, celebrating National Adoption Month. And, you know, Helen, one of the things that I think a lot of people listening who are thinking about adopting are worried about is. What happens when that young kid I adopt finds out their parents didn't want them? And this is a worry. And tell us about how you think about that and how you felt about these adopted parents. I mean, I just heard you say mommy and daddy, I think about six or seven times in the last paragraph. So I think I know the answer. But talk to the folks out there thinking about the very same thing, Helen. I was given a small book on adoption So I never not knew. They started reading it to me very early, and probably about five or six, I started asking a few questions. But until I went to school and had somebody call me a dotted child, I didn't really know what that was. And I just knew I was one of those people. But, you know, it's not until you're about eight or nine till you start feeling the ramifications that, you know, there's a little something different here, but... Am I the luckiest person in the world to have gotten adopted into this family? Right, and I think that's uh, now that's something we spend a lot of time talking about adoption on the show. We we spend at least a week a year doing it. Uh, we also spend time talking about miscarriages. Uh, these are these are big things that happen to families. No one talks about them, and I think they don't talk about them because there's still a, a, a little bit. I've talked to adopted families, and there's always attitude. How do you feel about that? Do you, how do you? Do some people think they're they're they weren't loved. Like a, a parent left them, so they don't ever feel full or whole. That doesn't sound like your opinion at all. Well, uh, no, uh, I had a full-fledged mother and daddy there all the time. That's right. If anything, I felt guilty sometimes for spending more time with one than the other. And so in the end, adoption stories are as different as people are, and gratitude, it sounds like, was the prevailing sentiment of finding a loving family. For sure. And we have Helen's mom sitting along with us right here. And Becky, we've heard how warmly Helen, your daughter, feels about you. And you're clearly, the two of you, still very close. Can you even imagine the past few decades of your life without Helen? No. I remember every morning when I'd go wake Helen up, she'd smile. And then one morning I went in there and she was frowning. And I said... She'll just turn over till you feel better, and then you can get up. 
And it wasn't two minutes until she put on a smile and got up and ran into my arms. So we didn't have much friction there. I mean, we always got along, and we still do. That's a beautiful thing. And families... She's family. really one of my best playmates. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had a lot of... <laughs> and, and by the way, I, and I've, I've talked a lot about my dad on this show. We're still playmates, and we played ball together and ping pong together. Yeah. And there was everybody said, well, where is the friction? Like, there had to be. And by the way, there can be, and it's not awful if it is, but it doesn't have to be. And, and we still, I still couldn't live without her. So she needs to keep healthy. <laughs> yeah, because I don't do one thing. I mean, Helen does it all. And I'm at the Blake now, and so she doesn't, She can keep traveling and not worry about me. But she calls all the time. And the Blake is a beautiful residence facility it, where it people is. live, and it's right here in town. Well, th- thinking about why you get along with your parents, I really think part of mom and daddy they were both the babies in their family. Mm-hmm. They were both playful. Right. They they weren't the serious ones in their family. Right. And I think that's why their siblings even worried about them adopting a child. They were like, we better keep really close tabs on them because they don't know what to do with this baby. They're not serious people. <laughs> so it was kind of funny. And Becky and Helen, we so enjoy meeting you here and witnessing your love and this camaraderie that we're enjoying right here together. I mean, this is an adoption story, folks. This is what it looks like. This is what it can sound like. They don't all look and sound like this, as as we've covered here on this show. But it was a love made possible by that first decision, and we're bringing it back around now, to adopting Helen. Any final thoughts about this thing called adoption, Helen? I just think that there's so many pros and so few cons, even this day and time. I know of adoptees who've lost parents, and even as fourth, fifth, and sixth graders gone to live with a family of one of their friends and felt so loved and appreciated and really just never looked back. It honestly doesn't matter, I don't think, this day and time, whether it's a baby or a small child that gets adopted because there's so much hope and there's so many directions to look forward instead of look back. As far as adopting a baby, the minute you find out you can't conceive, I think most people start going down that road. That's what happened to mom and dad. Mom had endometriosis, and they just never look back. Um, I think this day and time, so many people are doing IVF, different things like that. I wish they would adopt the ones that are already there. It's hard to watch different orphanages in different places have kids, (laughs) and it's why so many people go overseas. We have family members that have gone overseas to get kids, and you don't even have to go that far, and you don't have to go to that expense. There's so many kids in America who want to be loved. And it's so true. There are so many kids in this country who want to be loved. Adopt the ones who are already there. And thank you, Helen. And thank you, Becky. All month long, we're celebrating National Adoption Month here on Our American Stories. The story of Helen Overstreet and her mom, Becky Graber, right here in little Oxford, Mississippi. This is Our American Stories. (laughs) 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you stories about everything and across this whole country, stories from big towns and small towns, red states and blue states alike. And our next story is by Alex Cortez, who recently got to sit down at the kitchen table of a couple named Troy and Erica Andrews. He captured their story. I was around nine when my parents divorced, and Troy also, his parents divorced by the time he was nine, and that was just something we kind of said, I'll never, never want to do this to my children. To me, what affected us most is actually having the parent of the same sex be the one that left us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that was a very hard thing. But, especially as a mother, I mean, that was really hard. When I was younger, I thought she was pretty cool. She got to be sort of the every other weekend mom. And while other kids were complaining about their moms, I could complain about my stepmom. But my mom got to be my cool friend. But as I got older, it was harder for me to kind of comprehend. I would say, though, as a mother, I have my whole life just decided I would be the best mother <laughs> because I felt like I did miss that in a That's way. That's what I mean, that you have been just an absolutely incredible mother. And to make sure that the girls know that they're loved and that you... I mean, it's funny because our oldest daughter's a sophomore in college and she did her hair every morning up until she was a senior in high school. I'm like, you know, she's got to learn to do her own hair. <laughs> but she wanted to spend that every single... And she can do her own hair, by yeah. the way. I mean, she, she's, she's a fully she's functioning... I was, she's, I was worried. She's 1,500 miles away and doing great. She's, <laughs> she's totally functioning. My dad was an Illinois State Police officer. They had four kids by the time that my mom was like 22. So very young parents, and uh, they just didn't make it. And then my dad left, so I was raised by my mom. My grandfather died when he was 63, and you know, it had a pretty profound effect on me as well. I really questioned a lot of things because of things that happened to me. You know, why would why would God let this happen to me if He loved me? That sort of thing. And uh, one time, I remember after my dad left. There were there were things that uh, that were said that I still remember. Um, asking him why are you leaving? Don't don't you love us anymore? You know, no. And uh, I don't think he remembers that, and that's fine. I, I mean, I don't I hold no ill will. I mean, twenty some years old, you don't know. Let's face it, we're all pretty stupid in that part of our lives for the most part. So I, I hold no ill will about that. I mean, my story is my story, you know, and it's a great story, I think. Anyway, you know, I remember those things, but I remember outwardly just saying, I wished I was dead. I wished I was dead. I would say stuff like that to myself because I thought nobody cares. So I said that, and one day I was walking to school. I was pretty young, like 10 maybe. It was right after it happened. And so it was maybe a mile it was icy and cold and snowy, and I was walking down the road, and a car hit me when I flipped up over the car. And I was taken to the hospital in the ambulance. They thought I, I broke my nose, and they thought I might have broken my leg, but really wasn't hurt that bad. I had a concussion. But that was the first time I was like, well, wait a minute. You know, do I really wish I was dead? I mean, <laughs> you know, words are powerful, right? 
And then it wasn't too much longer after that. I had a crazy dream. I was standing in my grandmother's front yard, kind of looking out over the park. The, the uh, skies opened up, and all of a sudden I saw angels come down, playing their horns. And it's still pretty kind of emotional, but uh, anyway, I, I saw Jesus coming down. I remember my soul, like feeling my soul leaping, going, Jesus is coming, you know, just rejoicing. And then I woke up, and I'm 10 years old, and I was like, whoa. So that, to me, that was a message that I'm real, and I'm here, and I love you, and I have a plan. So I never said those words again. And, you know, it's funny. I, I don't have a problem telling people it because I didn't expect it. I mean, I wasn't in a good place, right? I wasn't like, uh, I mean, yeah, I was raised in the Presbyterian church, but, but I wasn't in a good place. I wasn't looking for God to tell me something. I mean, I guess, you know, I'd said things like, I wish I was dead and those sorts of things, but I, I didn't say, unless, unless God, you have something to tell me, you know, <laughs> or there's something. I wasn't looking for him to tell me anything. I was in despair. I didn't think that he cared. I thought it was all... I'm going to church and that's what people do, you know, but there was no manifestation of God in my life. And so I wasn't looking to have a dream. I just had one. <laughs> this is a weird way to describe it. But you know when you tip back on a chair and almost fall over, but you don't? <laughs> that's how it felt. That's how my soul felt leaping. And I'm sleeping. I was sleeping. That startled feeling. That's the only way I can describe it. So it's from a Stephen Wright joke. <laughs> anyway, from that time on, I've always had hope for something better. No matter what. No matter as bad as it gets, I always hope for something better. <laughs> that, that is, uh, that's, that's really my story of faith. But, you know, there's been a lot of climbing the hill and Sliding back down the hill, climbing the hill. But I always hope, I always have hope for a better future, and I never, ever give that up. And when we come back, we continue with the story of Troy and Erica Andrews. And we love doing these stories across this great country. Just ordinary folks living seemingly ordinary lives, but there's nothing ordinary about this couple or anyone else listening. Again, when we come back, Troy and Erica Andrews' story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Troy and Erica Andrews. First little church we went and checked out was a church plant. I think the very first time we went, a lady had just gotten back from Russia. She had been at a Russian orphanage, and so she did like a slideshow. The whole time I'm sitting there, I'm just feeling kind of weird. And we get in the car, we kind of look over trying to go, I really think, like the Lord's telling me, like that maybe we should adopt. He goes, I think the Lord was telling me that too. We got chosen by a birth mom. I cut the cord in the hospital and was there at the delivery and had a newborn. We named her Carly Jane. She's got the same middle name as all the other girls and me. And she was just sweet as pie, but at the time there was also some concern because the birth mom, we weren't sure if she was naming the correct birth father. I started hearing kind of a rumor that she was telling other people something different, which is very important when you are <laughs> trying to get consent to actually adopt this child and so you gotta have the birth father and the birth mother mm-hmm, the signs to, yes. to give away their rights and even the attorney said she had to in three days after the birth she had to go to court and she tried every which way to get her to are you sure there's any other punitive fathers you sure there's anybody else no 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 it's him it's him and so we kind of just settled in I kind of knew. Troy always was very cautious, but I'm always optimistic. (laughs) She stirred up something, and it came to find out that the birth father she'd originally named was not the correct one, and the one that was the birth father was notified. Well, he was currently serving time. So he was giving, just like anybody else, he was given notice of this. They could get him. He could come to contest it. And the state would, for $72, he would just have to pay $72, and they would transfer him to come show up for this court hearing. And he did not do that. The law stipulates that they do not show up, that it's the not judge, an if or then, but the, the judge the is judge supposed to shall terminate. That's shall what the, terminate. That's what the Oklahoma state language says, that the ju- if birth father does not show up, the judge shall terminate his parental rights. The judge didn't do that. Somehow, his mother got into the courtroom. Don't know how. We aren't even allowed in the courtroom. And when this is all happening, she stands up and says, we were told the baby was dead, that it was stillborn. We just now know this is my son's baby. That was extenuating. I I mean, I think that's why the judge sort of did what he did, but he really legislated from the bench and ordered us to pay the paternity test. <laughs> yeah. So not only did parental rights not get terminated, he legislated from the bench and made us pay for, us pay for a paternity test. And then we had one more court hearing, same judge, and so we pulled into the parking garage at the courthouse and we grabbed our hands and we prayed and we just said, Lord, you already know the outcome of this. So we've had this baby hey, 11 months. Yeah. <laughs> Lord, you already know. You already know what the decision is going to be. And so we just ask that you give us peace to be okay with whatever happens today and that we will trust you in whatever this is. So that was like January. He was the birth father. 
and the family fought for Carly. It was a maternal sister and a paternal sister that fought over Carly. At that point, we knew we were nobody, and we could have probably kept Carly for another two or three years, possibly, but we made the choice. She is young enough now. She's not gonna know really any different. We've given her a great start in her life for attachment. Her needs have been met. So we ended up handing her to the aunt of the incarcerated birth father. <laughs> and that was, a, I mean, that was probably just the worst day of my life. I called my friend that was a child psychiatrist and asked her, what do we do? They want to stay in touch with us because they know we, we probably saved her life. She probably had drugs in her system. She was a hard baby for nine months. She screamed a lot. I mean, we didn't need to have a baby monitor because you could hear her outside when she would scream. It wasn't even till later in some court records that told me that because no one ever re reported it to us, but that there had been drugs in the umbilical cord. Knowing the birth mom's temperament, she would have been a shaken baby. Then at one point, go back to my, I called my friend, this child psychiatrist, I said, what do we do? Do we just, I mean, if we go away right now, Carly will never know the difference, right? I mean, if we step out of her life, she'll never have known the difference. And Sarah said to me, kids coming from the most dysfunctional of situations, if there is one constant in their life, it makes all the difference in the world. And so, so we stayed in our life. So we decided to be her constant. And so we still, um, we still see Carly and we actually had her last weekend. Yeah, <laughs> she was here. here. Still, still calls us Mama Erica, Daddy Troy. She's doing well. I mean, it's, it's hard. The one thing I said as a child was I would never be a, a non-custodial parent because I, I just I couldn't imagine that. So, I mean, I would do everything to keep my marriage together. And it's very weird to have a child in this world that calls you mom, but you are not really their parent. And it's, that's been a really hard thing for me. But, again, it's because we have... We made the decision, we will be her constant. She can come here, see what a two-parent household looks like, sit down for family meals. And that's just sort of been our commitment all these years to Carly. And then in February of 2011, we get a call <laughs> from, from CPO. So I had been volunteering there, but hadn't for a little while. Although now I was on the list to call when people had a failed adoption, you know, and I was met when I, the day I had to um, hand Carly over, you know, I was met with a group of women in a room that had all had to do the same thing. So um, I was on the list of <laughs> people that I reached out to other women when they were going through it. And I think the one thing that I, am able to take from the situation with Carly is there was a moment where I was in the rocking chair, the same chair I'd rocked my other two girls in, 
and this baby's screaming. <laughs> and I'm thinking, Lord, what is going on here? You know, like you think you come in to adopt and it's love and it's all going to be, you know, beautiful rainbows and whatever. And I've got this really hard baby. And the Lord that day said, I did not call you to the mission field of Africa. I called you to a rocking chair. And that is something that I've used when I've talked to women forever, how long it is. And even I was on the phone with my friend Chris the other day, who still volunteers the CPL. And she says, Erica, I use that all the time. What you said, what you, what yeah. But about nine months after we lost Carly was when we get the call from CPO and said, I don't know if you're ready for this because they knew we were still struggling or I was for sure. But we've got this dad that's called. He's got a little girl. Are you guys open? Are you guys open? Would the Andrews answer that phone call after all that they'd been through? I don't know what I would do. But stay with us through the break to find out what happens next. Troy and Erica Andrews, their love story, their adoption story. And by the way, we're celebrating adoption stories all week long because it's National Adoption Month. And by the way, if you have ever been adopted, if you have adopted, share your stories with us. We celebrate them all year long, but every month, the month of November, all month long, we celebrate them because in the end, it's one of the great acts of love a human being can perform for another. And it happens all the time here in this great country, and we like to tell these good stories. And they're not easy ones. We don't do the rainbows and fairy stuff here on this show. It happens occasionally, the real easy adoption. But like bringing any human being into a new situation, it's no duck walk. And so when we come back, more of Troy and Erica Andrews' story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're back with the story of Troy and Erica Andrews. And after a year of taking care of someone else's little girl named Carly and believing that they were going to adopt her, the Andrews lost Carly to one of her aunts. So when Erica received a phone call asking whether they would adopt another child, well, she wasn't so sure. So I'm on the phone with my friend Chris, and I said, what does she look like? And she goes, oh, you know, I can't ask that. Which, at the ministry, if you get a call for a baby, it's either a yes or a no. Like, not, well, can we meet the baby? Can we see them for it? Because it's all, it's very much you're either about, willing you're either to take in or a you're, baby yeah. or not. 
They don't. You don't baby shop. You don't look through books yeah, at kids. It's a, you're usually taking on a birth mom, and a, you know, so they're very strict about that. I go, oh, that's right, that's right. You can't. N- never mind, never mind. We prayed hard because I wasn't ready. I mean, I still look back and think emotionally. I'm not sure I was in the best state of mind, but we couldn't find. There was no good reason not to. Like we could pray and pray, and there just was. There was no not there, there's selfish no, reason. Yeah, there was. No, there's it. no. Yeah, I mean, if you were either called to this or you're not, there's. Yeah, every reason to not do it would be selfish. There's a child that needs a home. So there are five books. So I said, we are totally going to leave this on the Lord. You know, if He picks one of the other families, great. I don't know if we're supposed to do this. I don't know if this is right for us right now. There's five families. That was on a Tuesday. Every single day, a family got eliminated for whatever reason. He found out, oh, this family's going out of the country on a mission trip, so he didn't want them. And then there was another one, didn't want them. Come Saturday night, we're down to two families. We knew he was coming to town on Sunday with Sophia to possibly meet us. Saturday night, it's down to two families. Us and, and I, I know the other family. That night, they get matched with a birth mom, picks them to have a newborn. So literally... The Lord made the choice because he came to town thinking it was like we were the family, which I kind of hated. Like I still wanted there to be some chance (laughs) because I didn't know if I was ready, you know, but he came and we get a phone call. Okay, he wants to meet you. So we go meet them. He asked us questions. We met Sophia and we went and had dinner with them. And then, yeah, I had his girlfriend with him. We ended up taking her the next weekend. It was supposed to be for just a couple of days. He wasn't sure of the situation, the birth mom. He had left Florida with Sophia. She's about three and a half. They had not had contact with the birth mom for over a year. So Sophia had not seen her mom since she was about two. And so now she's about three and a half. He had kind of left her a lot of different places with some grandmas. And, you know, he wasn't parenting really well. He's a, he was a 31-year-old man, so it's not like he was 20. So he brought her. It was supposed to be for a weekend, sort of a trial thing. And then on Sunday when he came back, he said, hey, it's going to be spring break. I stopped to work. I mean, do you think you could keep her for one more week? Well, we said we are not keeping her until... So we did do some preliminary paperwork, just sort of a a temporary guardianship thing to leave her, but he says, I'm pretty sure I'm going to do this. After that week, he said, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, and so then, so then he had to have more permanent paperwork done. He was supposed to take to his county, get it notarized, signed by a judge, whatever. That drug out for two, three weeks. So now we've had her over a month. She's calling us mom and dad. At that point, I was even taking her to interviews for preschool and stuff because she was going to be... Anyway, he comes back to visit and is supposedly bringing all the necessary paperwork and shows up and was taking Sophia to go to McDonald's. They were going to go have a little play date. And when they came back, she left calling me mom and she walked back in calling me Erica. And I was like, something's up. So they sit down. Yeah, well, everybody just understand. Well, he said... You know, all this family of hers was going to help, and, and if they didn't come back with her, they were going to call the police. And, I, and by this time, you know, I've packed up one child already. <laughs> and so I said, I, he was kept wanting a small I said, I just need to know, are you taking her right now? And he goes, well, yes. And I stood up, left Troy in the living room, marched packed upstairs, up packed everything I could up. I'm taking stuff out to the car. He came out to 
have a cigarette or something, and I looked at him, I said, because she had said earlier that she was kicked out of her grandma's house. I mean, a three-year-old telling me I was kicked out of my yeah, grandma's house. My grandma house. said I was a menace. And I said, if I had to go through this, and my family had to go through this, and she had to go through this so that you knew that you were going to do this and do it well and be a dad, then it's worth it. But I said, you make sure that little girl knows she was not kicked out of this house. And so packed her up, said goodbye. About two months later. Oh, was it two full months? That would have been I thought it was like April. two weeks. <laughs> Maybe a month. Yeah. So. Well, end of May, he calls back. Nobody's helping me that said they would and basically begged her. That begged begged us to take her back. And I said, we, we cannot take her right now until we have the mother terminated. We find her. So we hired a private investigator to find her. She's in Indiana. I said, because if she's out looking for a kid, doesn't know where a kid is. I mean, I'm not taking someone's child. Oh so God. we had to find her. We served her papers. It was the end of July. It was going to be the termination hearing. She shows up. She shows up. Drives all the way, all the way from, from Indiana. Indiana. So right at that moment, then the termination hearing stops. Well, we come out and start talking to the birth mom, explain to her what open adoption is. I talked to her probably about an hour and a half in the courtroom. As we're leaving, they're making plans for her to see Sophia. And if the girl had had a lick of legal counsel, she would have known when she met it. Oh, and she showed up with her front teeth knocked in. So I'm like, we are rescuing this child. Yeah. <laughs> like we knew, like it was not. She had a black eye too. Black eye. And they were going to meet so she could see Sophia. She could have, in the state of Oklahoma, taken her that day because a father's always putative till they prove that they're the father, but a mother is a mother. And if she would have had any legal counsel when she met her at that McDonald's, she could have taken her and left the state, and there was nothing Adam could have done. But she talked to me and, I guess, asked Sophia where she wanted, do you want to live with the Andrews? And supposedly Sophia said yes, which... You don't put that on a child, but, and they, she left. So I'm already on my way back to Tulsa and I get a phone call. Hey, I've just seen Sophia. Um, if I was to maybe sign my parental rights away, you know, can I come and see where she'd live? So they stayed about an hour and a half. She was with her then fiance, now husband. About three, four days later, she called our attorney and signed all the paperwork and had it all sent in and so then about a week later we got her back but I would say losing Carly was the worst thing I've ever gone through but adopting an older child you know they come from hard places this has been the hardest thing we've ever done I tell people adoption is it, it love is not enough you have to be prepared for these kids have come from a hard place and there is a lot of work to do for them. Love's not enough to bring them out of where they're at. That they're hole. In, that hole in their heart because they were abandoned. And, I mean, she really, you know, I look at her and she still talks about her birth father. And, and you know, there's just... Still that, grie is still grievous about it. And yeah. And it doesn't matter how much we love her. She knows that, but there's still that hole there. <laughs> There's still that hole there, and we've heard that before. Love is not enough, and again, it's no duck walk to do these things, but but yet people do it, and thank goodness they do. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, share your stories with us if you're adopted, if you're an adoptee, and send them to us, and we'll, we'll put them together. You're hearing how we're doing this. This isn't fancy, and this isn't perfect. This is a couple of people talking. We put up some microphones, and we want to get these stories as authentically 
recorded as possible and put right back over the air and right back at you. These are beautiful stories. They're hard stories, but my goodness. I love when they said, there was no good reason not to, Erica said. And Troy said there was no non-selfish reason not to. Every single reason they could think of was a selfish one, to not adopt a child. And of course it's going to be hard, because raising your own children is hard, and you never know what you're going to get. But that's what love entails. When we come back, this remarkable love story, Troy and Erica's story, so many adopted family stories, here on Our American Stories. Turn to our final portion of the remarkable story of Troy and Erica Andrews and their adoption journey. And my goodness, it is not an easy one, folks. And this is a tough story to listen to, but my goodness, the plots, the contours, and they hang in there, that they're hanging in there like this is just, well, it's testimony to their character and their commitment to the total stranger. We return to Troy on the feeling of abandonment that their adopted daughter Sophia has and that he, well, he can also relate to. I had to realize growing up that my parents, people are people and they make mistakes. And they're influenced by their surroundings and the way they're raised and all those things and that makes them who they are and they make mistakes. And you can't hold them to that like that is, like I'm never gonna forgive you for that. Because people can, people are redeemed and they're redeemable and they, you know, they, you, you got to see it for what it is and not put people up on pedestals because they're always going to let you down. And so um, and I would always tell that to Sophia because she's always searching that, you know, people are always going to let you down because they're sinful. And she's so young, it's hard for her to grasp that. Sure, yeah. We just got to kind of keep saying it. She keeps thinking that because of her birth parents... And sort of their, I guess, failure, that that's kind of what her destiny is. And we are really trying to show her that, but she's different because she, she has Jesus in her heart. And God had such a plan for her life that he kind of took her out of the situation. And like he knew before she was born, she would be in our family. Even if that's not his perfect plan for babies to come in the world, you know, and not be with their birth parents, he knew, and he he had a, he has special plans for her. And it's really, I think, when these kids come from hard places, and we adopted her at almost four, um, it's hard for them to let that go that there wasn't something wrong with them. And we both dealt with that through divorce too. I mean, why would my mom leave me? What's wrong with me? Why would my dad? You yeah. know. So, and we can sort of understand it, but we also very real, very much aware that the hole in her heart, no matter what we do, no matter how hard we love her, is not going to be filled by anything except for Jesus. Because she, that's a tough thing for a kid to be, you know, basically given up. 
you know, right now we're having trouble with a boy that said some very pretty awful things at school to her. And we just said, but you believed him. Who are you supposed to believe? You're supposed to believe what God says about you. You're the daughter of the king of kings. You know, I said, and then you don't get a letter like a little note like this from a teacher. If what he said about you is true, when you look what your teacher wrote, because she wants to, she'll take the bad. She'll believe the bad bad way over the good. And that's just really, that's where we are just con. It's a, it's easy for us to stand back and see all the things that have happened to her. We just kind of had this conversation with her last night where we were telling her, you know, you, you know, you don't understand your story, but God, you know, Jesus, God, he picked you and put you, took you out of it. And I, I always, I always have this kind of concept of, of Jesus. You know, I love the scales of justice. You know, you see the scales of justice. Well, those scales are his, and he's the one that decides and brings justice to an unjust situation, but you don't know when, and that's the beauty of it. She's, she was telling us, I just want to know what my purpose is in life and who I'm supposed to be, and I go, that's the great gift. You love to receive gifts. You aren't supposed to know that. You don't want to know that now. Why would you want to know that? That's the great gift that you get to unravel and you get to look back. Someday in your life, you're going to look back at your story and go, wow, that's pretty cool. I I can't remember where I read this. Mother Teresa and somebody had asked her, I want you to pray for clarity in my life. And she goes, that's the one thing I won't pray for, you know, is clarity. Why, you know, I won't pray for that. I will pray that you have faith and that that you trust and that the Lord will reveal it to you, but I'm not going to pray for clarity for you. (laughs) (laughs) Even with your own birth children, you can feel like you're not having a good day with your kids. But you know, you can have a good, have a bad day with your birth children, and there's nothing that challenges that bond and that love. But when you have an adopted child and you have a challenging day, you're always second guessing Am I hurting them because I'm having a bad day, or am I not feeding them or giving them emotionally what they need? You, you just there's you're always weighing your choices on making sure you are helping and not hurting them, and you're always worried about their attachment and are they fit, you know? And it, I have struggled. I mean, there's days when we feel like failures. Absolutely, sure. because you just love is not enough. I mean, there's so much more. I mean, you can love them. I've, I've tried to explain to her, and I don't think I did a good job. I mean, I said I think I love her harder than I. It takes so much effort to show her how much she's loved, to express to her, to get her to under. And yet you weigh it with you want to treat them the same, but sometimes you have to treat them differently. Well, she's got a different personality. She has a very different personality. She has. She's extremely brilliant. I mean, she has a very high, very high IQ. Knowing that, we do everything. I do everything in my power to help her. But she has very severe ADHD. And I mean, for two years, my full-time job was diet modification, supplements, taking her to... We were doing everything but medicating. And we are medicating now because school was, was getting too difficult. She had to be able to focus. So we've got that... On one side, you've got the abandonment and... She's always comparing how we treat the other girls to how we treat her, but she's different. She's, she's got things that we have to keep her on a routine and a schedule, and the other she girls, you don't have to do that. <laughs> you give her too much flexibility in it, and she... It backfires, and it hurts her, and it hurts us, and, you know, and it's just, there's, it's just different. I just think the sense of it is heightened 
or they take it, an adopted child takes it, like, we'll treat the other like two you differently. Like you love me less. And to let her know, even if we're on our most frustrated days, we're never going to give up on her. She's, there's still that fear. There's still, seven years later, a fear of her that, what if I go, I've gone too far, you know, or I'm... We, are, are we, they have, we took her on a Disney vacation, like the first... Oh, gosh, no. It was like October. We got her in August, got her back, and then went on a trip. I, it was a miracle. I, I said it was it was the Lord that even got her on this cruise for us because they only have so many fours, and then she'd be adding a fifth. And but the guy I ended up talking to his daughter adopted, and so he made some Disney magic, and we got her on this cruise. We thought, how amazing, because she's always very vivacious. So if you see, oh, that's pretty, oh, that's pretty. And so we thought, oh, my gosh, she's going to blow her mind. We're going to take this child and take her on a Disney cruise and go to Disney World. And it was a nightmare. I think... Everybody in the family cried at some point on that cruise, except for me. Yeah. Maybe I did. I don't know. (laughs) And it was just, here's this beautiful little, I mean, when I did her all up in her Cinderella and we went down to meet the prince, I mean, people were stopping and gasping because she just was just this little vision. But she was, at that time, we were all like, and we get home from that trip, and that night, I got everybody to bed, and we looked at each other and we thought, what have we done? Like, we just ruined our family. Like, what just happened? And the next morning, she comes bouncing down the stairs. And she gets up on her. She's like, ah, what'd she say? My tummy feels My good. tummy feels, feels tingly. And I said, well, what do you mean? She goes, I'm so happy. I'm so glad to be home. She was so, the whole time she was in, then I've since Lighter. then learned, like Lighter. the book Lighter. I read like a month later said, she was in fight or flight that whole trip. She was waiting she was, for us to leave her somewhere. Because he always he would, would build say, it up. hey, we're yeah. going to go see grandma. Let's go to grandma's house. And they'd go on this big, long car trip and then he'd leave her. Bye-bye. I'll see you. So still to this day when we travel, there's always a time she gets a little off and we go, we're all going home together. We're all getting in this van together. We're all, you know, there's still, that triggers that and fight then she's fine. She's fine. If you just will like grab her by the face and say, you're coming home with us. Yeah. You understand that, right? So those are the things that I say, love is not enough. Cause you can love them hard, love them well. And there's still going to be triggers that happen that and they can't always explain it they don't understand it and i try to understand off. why are you off you just know that something's off and generally it goes back to something that they it's in the base of their skull that they don't even they don't even know we've had friends actually got into adoption because of us and i'm like i'm surprised we didn't scare you away because of what they saw us go through and i'm i'm very honest with people when they when they ask me about it but i ain't going back to in whatever way you can be a constant for someone, whether it's through adoption or volunteering at Big Brothers and Sisters, or maybe it's just the neighbor kid down the street that you know is from a broken home that they like to be in your kitchen for a reason. It's because, yeah, you're actually, you're making a dinner and you sit down and, you know, I mean, so I think it can be adoption. It, it, it is, it's, it, it's a calling. Um, I agree with Troy, you don't ever feel obligated to it, but we should question ourselves if this is something God is calling us to do but just find ways, you know, to be a constant person. And great job as always on that, Alex. And it's just such a, an honor. It's a privilege to, to get to know people like this. Troy and Erica Andrews, honest as can be, straight as arrows, my goodness. And their capacity to, to do good and to honor their God. And that happens all over this country, and we're not afraid to dig in there. We also talk about great men and women in this country who are atheists, 
agnostics. There are all kinds, but we will not shy away when someone mentions God or the Lord here either because, well, we just respect individuals and what they honor, and we get out of the way. That's all we do here. And again, if you have your stories about adoption, send them to us. We really want to hear them, and we play them all year long. They're the best love stories that you could possibly imagine, and you just heard a great one right here. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org, and we will put them together and put them up on the air. And again, thank you, Troy and Erica, for inspiring other people to imitate what you do, and that is the power of stories, ultimately, folks. It's their imitative power. And Troy and Erica, thank you for sharing your story. Their stories here on Our American Stories. One, two, three.